what can even small family businesses do that haven't quite built to maybe that huge valuable asset stage yet. Just be really aware of investing equally in your family as you are in your business. That is a challenge. We have to be realistic here. You can't build a successful family business and be in perfect balance with your family as well. You can't spend 50% of your time with your family and 50% in your business. I just don't think that's realistic. So it's just back maybe two things. One is recognizing that you're only human and so the stresses and the strains and the pressures of that family business day, this applies to anyone even if you're simply employed, you know, going to work, to a job and back. All of that stuff you're dealing with at work that you are going to bring that home. So the first thing is, is how can you put some boundaries in place and know which hat you're wearing? How can you transition between the business and the family home so you're not bringing the stresses and strains of the business into the family home? And I think, and that works in reverse. Whatever's happening in the family at that time, how can you contain that and not bring that into your workplace or your family business? Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Hi, and welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terence Toe, Director and Founder of Strategic Corporation. I'll be one of your hosts today, and we've got Nadia today as well. I'm Nadia Hughes from Smart Business Solutions, and I'm very, very happy to be here. And so Nadia is our co-host on the Unfair Advantage Project. Great to have you here too, Nadia. And our guest today is Ryan Morgan. Good morning, Ryan. Great to have you here. Thank you. So Ryan is a, let me get this right, family, business, and wealth psychologist has previously worked with some of the richest people in Australia, some or wealthiest people, we'll say, through and consulted with companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers and now is the owner of Family Legacy Builders. That's right. So, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about business succession planning. And we were having a little bit of a pre-discussion around when you think about business succession planning, you just think about, well, this really applies to the wealthiest people. This applies to the people who have built successful businesses already and who, who have real assets that they've got to, they've got to plan around mm. and they've got to look at, at who's going to take on the business and operate it well and, and successfully. And where we got to is that really one of the things you've got to do is start planning for this earlier. You've got to start planning before you actually your business actually becomes successful. That's correct. The way you introduced it's kind of uh, one of those text planning. Um, it's a bit boring. <laughs> Don't take too personal iterance. But for me, this session is all about rich people cry too. That's all it's about. So we all accountants, business coaches, we all coaching our clients to be successful, build a lot of wealth, enjoy their wealth and everything. Apparently, there is a big problem. People do not enjoy their wealth later on. They build it, but then whether they run out of time themselves and want to pass it on to kids, the wealth, or they just find themselves struggling with wealth. They don't know what to do with it. Is it correct? That's correct. Yes, absolutely. So, rich cry too. 
Yes, they certainly do. Oh, wow. They certainly do. <laughs> yeah. And probably at a higher rate than maybe what we're even aware of. Uh, that's what I want this podcast being about. It's not me sitting here rubbing my hands. Yes. Mm. It's more about understanding how other side of the world lives. Because it's only what is percentage of the rich people in Australia? What really we talk about extreme case of rich people. Do you know the, how many of them? Oh, look, it's less than 0.5%, I think, really. Surprisingly, there are a substantial amount of wealthy people in Australia. Yeah. I think there is a, a 2% level of income earners who, who are sitting in that over a couple of million level. I suppose that depends what you class as wealth as well. But well, certainly, we, 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 you're mega, talking, you're mega about, wealthy. Uh, yes. Anyone who's probably over... We're talking about filthy rich, fat yes. cats, yes. everybody who hate them but want to be them. Sure, that, yeah. We're looking of, at about sort of a, a 0.5% sort of market. We, we're looking at yeah. 0.5% and we're looking from point of view of a small business owner. We're talking about a medium business owner sitting out there and dreaming, mm. dreaming to be this person. What we are going to talk about, what it's like to be this person, mm. what problems this person have. Mm. And whether when you're dreaming to be the, the wealthiest man in the country, you are bringing upon yourself a bit of trouble. Exactly right, you are. Yeah. Yes. Okay, let's do it. Good. All right. So tell us a little bit about what you do and, and how you do it. Yeah. Start there. Yes, that's always the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> One of those hard things to explain. What is a family business and wealth psychologist? So maybe to put some context around what it was born out of. Essentially, you know, family businesses themselves are run by and grown out of family members. And quite often than not, it's quite accidental that family businesses become somewhat of a success as family members, as individuals are just learning and stumbling over themselves as they try and grow their business. And so through the process of doing that, you know, they're not focusing very heavily on building in some of the good infrastructures that you might see in a, say, publicly listed company. You know, they tend to be the HR manager, they tend to be the bank manager, the accountant. You tend to be all things when you're starting a family sort of business. So I think through that process and through how family businesses are generally born and grown, there are many things that tend to potentially fall by the wayside. And the big thing is often it's family relationships. And so that's sort of really why the psychologist part sort of comes in, because we've recognized that the very things that Nadia was mentioning, those future consequences of now having a successful business or having a lot of wealth, those future consequences tend to be more so on the types of relationships that exist within a family. And it's that conflict that actually ends up causing major issues in the family business itself. So family business and wealth psychology really is about trying to understand that interaction of a family member and family team who are interacting with a business and how the one can impact on the other. And finding ways to build good structures, I suppose we call them governance structures, into that family slash business world to help them separate business from family. And again, that's another reason why You'll find in the space, particularly internationally, a lot of psychologists have actually gotten involved in doing this work. And that's an interesting one because what you think about family business, it usually starts with one person mm. and you call it patriarch. The pa the, usually the patriarch. Though. The founder and the wife would be there because they do have money. She will be producing a lot of hairs. And then, but Patriarch won't be involved in raising those kids. He would be too busy building this success for yes. them. 
That's the irony of it all. That the fam- while he's building this he, for his family, he doesn't enjoy the family life himself. That's right. That's and right. this sacrifice, you said, it comes at a sacrifice. And yes. that's what I put on my paper, that the sacrifice at such extent that he's not there with his family. Mm, that's right. And what you are going to, basically, what you are doing, you're dealing with consequences of this extreme wealth and at the same time, huge gap between people, between mm. a generation where patriarch is not known who he is. People, children do not know who their dad is. It's this, this stranger who is now, you said, dictates them how to live their life. Mm. And that's what you were consulting on. So you effectively will rebuilding relationship or creating bridges between the patriarch who was so remote from his kids and now wants to get involved in kids' life. Absolutely. Or it may be the complete opposite. Unfortunately, there is a significant amount of conflict that has arisen in the family as a result of not having good, strong relationships, a good, strong foundation combined with a family business who, in many cases, it's not a slow burn. It's many cases, it's actually quite a a sudden turnaround where the wealth gets realized. So it's a bit of a sudden wealth syndrome combined with family not ready and not prepared for a lot of conflict. So it's often getting involved to do conflict resolution and not even succession planning yet, simply because the family are in such disarray. So maybe as a psychologist, will you explain me to one thing? Because everybody says, we're all humans until money is Mm. put on the table. What is it about money makes people act like animals towards each other? (laughs) Greed. Greed. Yes, yes. And control. So probably it comes down to what does money represent? You know, the old saying that money is the root of all evil certainly is inaccurate. Money is is just a means of exchange, a means of barter, I suppose. It becomes the root of all evil, depending on the hands in which it lands. (laughs) So we know, you know, there are many individuals who do enormous good with the wealth they have through philanthropy. And, of course, that's another piece of good governance that hopefully we get to talk about today. But it really is what that money represents to the person that can cause the problem. And in many cases, it's freedom, it's control, it's power. and we are naturally driven towards, particularly men, I might add, you know, we are naturally driven to dominate, to be in control, to be the powerful. Well, it's the old hunter-gatherer sort of mentality, you know, the man being the hunter out there to dominate, control, overpower the animal and kill. There's a lot of instincts in, in, in blokes that are driving this. And I think that's why, you know, we've come to learn that money can equal that. What is it in our brain makes us want this power, like apart from control? Survival. It's It's our basic survival instincts. On the bottom of it, doesn't matter how Mm. we can surround ourselves with the most civilized things in the world, Mm. but we will go to core. Yes, absolutely. So if you imagine just a little bit of biology that you might be interested in, when we're born, you know, within two hours of being born, our social part of our brain is fully active along with our fight and flight center, our fear center. And that's integral to human survival. And by age 10, that part of the brain is fully developed before the rest of the brain. So it tells you something, you know, social survival is obviously of vital importance. In fact, we even know that people who are socially starved can die. That's how huge it is. But what we've come to understand through neuroscience is that when any human being enters any situation, that within a couple of milliseconds, all information goes through the social emotional part of the brain first. And we get to determine a couple of things. One, am I free to be in charge or am I going to be controlled by these people? 
So we're already trying to determine whether we have autonomy, who's got the power. We're trying to determine, do we belong in this group? So do they look like me? Are they different? All of these types of things are being determined within a millisecond before the rest of the brain actually gets to interpret it. So our survival, our safety at the very root of our biological system is already saying, are you going to be in control in the situation? Are you going to be the person in a powerful position or will someone be exerting that over you? Do you have freedom of will? Do you belong? Are you the same or are you different? And you can sort of see that's our basic instinct. In some ways, money is a bit of an answer, isn't it? Because it's, it's a resource. Money, money means resource. that I can always be, or wealth rather, can be unpowerful, can mm. always sort of guarantee that to some degree, or at least we perceive it can. Or it doesn't matter if I don't belong with you because I'm wealthy and that comes with social status. So I don't have to be accepted by you in a sense. So it actually sort of is a bit of an answer to a lot of these deep survival fears that we have. And that's why I think we we tend to be driven to acquire it in such large amounts. Okay, what I would like you to start with is this saying you said about short sleeve. <laughs> shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. What does it mean? So there are many sayings, and I uh, can't remember right now around the world what they all are, but shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves has been a very old saying. Really, the aim of that was to try and capture what we've now come to see through research in the lives of family businesses and wealth in that your first generation generally starts with nothing, you know, but their shirt sleeves, <laughs> you know, rolled up and getting their hands dirty and absolutely building this business from scratch. And some may get to realize by the end of that first generation, that successful business and that wealth, it then gets passed on to that second generation who then tend to enjoy the benefits of that wealth to such a level that by the third generation there is virtually nothing left and the family are back to their shirt sleeves. And so that's why it's shirt sleeves, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves within three generations. They started with nothing, they finished with they nothing finish with and nothing. generation in between enjoyed it. They usually, this what they call it, lifestyle, they're having playboy. Lifestyle. In a way, yes, yes. Okay, yes. so between two hardworking people we have a playboy in between. What are the main drivers of that? Sure. So I suppose the good thing is we've now done a little bit of research in the field looking more broadly at countries like the US and Europe for that matter. You know, in Australia, we're still very young in terms of our generational wealth transfer. You know, by and large, we really are from a first to a second generation and maybe a second to a third. Very rare do we see any third generations passing on wealth. Whereas in Europe, they're on their eighth, their ninth, their twelfth generation. You know, they're, they're certainly well ahead of the curve. So having a look at those countries, the question has been, why, you know, after so long have families still been realizing the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeve syndrome, you know, if we can call it that. And what the research found was that essentially from the first to the second generation, about 70% of family businesses and wealth transitions actually fail. And so really what they mean by fail is it's passed on and that second generation will probably blow it all, be it wealth or there will be the wrong person nominated to actually take over that family business as a successor who's not the right person, not adequately trained or prepared, and as a result will manage that business into the ground as well. So 
having a look at that, the question was, well, why is that? You know, I suppose our common assumption is it's because of maybe the climate of the time, the economics, or it was for business reasons, such as bad tax advice or bad financial advice. And generally, we found that that was actually a really small percentage of the reasons. It was it was less than 15%. The bulk of that reason, so about 60% of the reason for why these, these failures occur was actually due to a lack of communication and trust. Another 15% was due to a lack of adequately training and preparing the heirs to take over the family business and or to manage that wealth in a, in a responsible way. So you can see that a substantial percentage of that reason for failure was for family reasons and not for business reasons. And that's not a surprise. When you look at this, again, from a psychologist, and I think this is where psychology has been helpful, you know, we use a systems theory approach to understand what's going on in a family unit. You know, there are individual family members who all have their own worldviews and they're all interacting with each other. And so if one family member is not doing too well, it puts a lot of stress on the rest of the family. And that's what systems theory is, is trying to show us, is, you know, when one part of the system is going out, the rest of the system suffers. So you really got to focus on fixing this. And so when you use that theory and you apply it to sort of the family business enterprises, you see that if you can imagine three interlinking circles, we actually have these three systems. We have a family system, you have the business system, but you also have, in a sense, the owner system. So you know, what I mean by that is there are certainly family members in the family circle, be that the patriarch in the beginning, but it might be patriarch, matriarch, and it might even be one or two of the kids who start, you know, in this family unit. You've then got the business system that might involve the father or the mother only sort of building that business. As they grow, they might get one or two of their kids involved in that business. But then who's the actual owner of that business? Who's the shareholder? And that may only be the father, even though all these multiple people are involved. So the idea is that we can see that we've got these three interlinking systems. And in a sense, it's as if family members are wearing different hats. And so the key is for us to look at well, what's going on in the systems model? If something's going on in the family system, is it affecting the business? Is something going on with the owner? How does that actually affect the family and the business? So in short, as an example, you know, if father in many cases, and uh, this isn't to be sexist, but of course, in many cases, it is the patriarch who's building these businesses. You know, he's not been present. He's not been home. So he's the owner. He carries that burden as the the 100% shareholder or owner of this company, equity owner, but he's also a family member, trying to be a family member, and he's also trying to be in the business, growing the business. And so by wearing these three different hats, they all get a little bit overlapped and confused. So this is where we start to see these inter-system conflicts occurring, and that's the reasons why businesses actually start to fail. So families fail for business reasons too. You know, the business can be struggling in the pressure of that because, again, you've got the patriarch wearing that hat. He will not be able to take that hat off. He walks into the family home and he brings all of that back home. Mm. And, of course, that can then affect the family. You can then see what happens in the family. They go into a bit of turmoil. That gets dragged back into the business. So once we looked a little bit more closely and looked at this issue of systems, you understand, well, what's the solution? Well, in any system, it's about trying to draw distinct boundaries between the systems, firstly, and recognize that there are different systems. And once you start that, you're already well on your way. The second part would then be to say, well, how do I put in structures that can actually ensure that those boundaries will remain in place between those sort of three interlinking systems? And in short, that's what family governance and succession planning is. That's ultimately what it is. It's working with families and businesses to put in 
rules of the game or strategy, build strategy that actually forms the boundaries between each of those different areas. So it helps the family members if it's just the father or it's now multiple family members know when I'm in a certain domain, which hat am I wearing? Am I a family member now that I'm home? Am I a business manager because I'm home? Or am I acting as an owner, as an equity shareholder? Um, and that's, yeah, that's in short, that's what good governance is. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a lot of it comes down to preparation. Yes, to be very given, much so. You know, actually being prepared in the initial stages, you know, be, as we kind of alluded to earlier, before you actually end up with a successful business. Yes, very, very much. It appears to me when you go into the business, you need to get your support team right. Mm. You need to get your background, not only your finance sorted, but you also need to get your personal stuff sorted as well. And you need to get this reassurance that one system, well, in fact, it's one becomes one total system, but elements of this system is congruent. Mm. That's what you do. You align it all. What usually happens, husband goes into the business to prove his wife that he can do and capable of something doing. Therefore, he doesn't get her buy-in. It's more like quite often happening. I'm taking just unisolated cases here and keeping them in mind. Then what we're having, we're having a position. Okay, fine. She's an observer there rather than a participant Mm. in this activity. And then what we have later on, disjoint, she is raising kids. He is bringing bread, but they never ever sat down and put together what are we doing all together, what mm-hmm. my role, what is his role. And it's quite often I see this happening when husband passes away. Wife is left dealing with the very complicated affairs which she was not privy to. Mm-hmm. And I see it over and over happening. Yes. It's quite often happened. A wealthy individual will bring overseas wife. I won't profile anybody ethnically there but it's very common and then overseas why lack of language mm. lack of any skills or literacy i'm talking about financial is left to deal with the mm. rest of mm. the family yeah. and i see a lot of these cases that's why i wanted to bring you in to just point it out yes that we can build as big business as you would like to but it doesn't guarantee success and wealth transition. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Nadia. It's not just, you know, we often talk of a lack of preparing and training that next generation, but it, it's also that current generation. You know, we find in many cases the spouse themselves is not ready and prepared to take over when the patriarch passes away. And it may simply be financial literacy. We know, we know in this country, we, you know, women do suffer from a lack of financial literacy. You know, it is something on the radar that the groups are calling for better training, better education. But you're absolutely right. And those, again, all of those reasons are all family reasons. And it comes down to those reasons we talked about earlier that were uncovered, which is a lack of communication and trust. And then the second was a lack of adequately training and preparing the heirs and or the spouse to be able to manage and handle and take over all of that. So the solution doesn't lie in the business. You know, we'd say the solution lies 100% within the family and focusing on getting the family into a place where they are communicating in an open and an honest manner, where nothing's kept secret from even the adolescent and, and young adult children, that they get to be exposed to the finances, to what's going on in the business, but more so what's actually going on in the family itself. So, you know, the focus needs to be on what can we put in place to improve the way family members communicate with each other? Why is there a lack of trust? I mean, that's the second part of that. And often it's simply 
because, as I said earlier, you know, when the founders building the business, they're not around. So how do you build a trusting relationship if you're actually not present in the life of your child? I'm certainly not saying to, you know, patriarchs and matriarchs trying to build their business there, well, you need to be at home and present in your children's lives all the time. If that was the case, no family businesses would be built and wealth wouldn't be built. I think the recognition is that it is going to have to come with a sacrifice, but how can I do that better? It's not about being present in the lives of your children 100%. It's about making the most of the time you do have to be open and honest and build strong bonds that way. And I think that's the missing piece. It's is a that quality of presence rather than quantity of presence. Absolutely. So when you are present, yes. you are so vested in this that's moment. It. And yes. it creates really good and trusted communication yes. between you. You said it, being fully present. And you know, back to those circles, can you imagine if dad comes home or mum comes home and she's been building and working and slaving away in this business? Most often than not, it's really a challenge to be able to switch that off and then be fully present in the family. And as I said, you bring all of that day's mess into your family and often you just take it out on them. Mm. You know, So I think that is not leading to quality time. So it's actually just wasting what time you do have that could be used to actually build a really good relationship, close relationship. Yeah. This really resonates with me a lot. And I think I've been fortunate to have built and actually been able to sell and exit businesses. And- my opinion before doing that would have probably been a lot different. And mm. it wasn't, for me, a lot of the realization of how much I wasn't doing at home mm. came after I actually exited the business mm. and realized all the stuff that I was kind of missing out on. Yes. And also, the other thing that I like to kind of do with, with my clients is to look at the business through the lens of exiting mm. the business, mm. you know. So, when you actually first start up with your business, part of your preparation is to look at it through the lens of an exit or a sale or whatever it is because that really changes, well, a lot of the things that you do in a business, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. if you're trying to be a job owner, for instance, or a business owner, right? Mm-hmm. So, And I call them job owners because, you know, lots of people go out and they just pretty much build themselves a job. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a saleable asset at the end of it all. Mm. But building something which is a business that can work independently of you and that actually provides you with some form of freedom at the end of it, Mm. I think really should be the end goal for most of us. And that, to me, is also probably part of the preparation of of your succession planning because it gives you the time and the space to be able to do the other things that you need to do, to spend Mm. some time with the Mm. family, actually, you know get some understanding of them. And I think one of the other things that you said was they really need to understand what you do, yes. you know, and be prepared for the fact that if they're going to move into this, I mean, it all looks pretty easy and pretty simple from the outside, right? But if you're someone who's grown a business from nothing to multiple millions of dollars um, or perhaps more than that in revenue or whatever, there's a lot to that, you know, and there's a lot of knowledge gained along the way that you can't just learn overnight. Mm. So that really kind of mm. resonates with me. What, what I'm interested in, and I've got some understanding of this from my point of view, but what kind of strategies do you really look to implement mm. to ensure that there is succession, you know, mm. and the business continues? And are you only focusing on succession planning within the business or, you know, does this work for, you know, to bring someone else in from outside the business so the business continues as well. Absolutely. I mean, all and above. I think ultimately it's about what's going to work best for the family. So, you know, I, there is no one size fits all. And in essence, I think that's where for many, many years we went wrong. 
governance was always seen as the solution. Building a family constitution, you know, was seen as a bit of the solution. And more often than not, families would work through their lawyer or their accountant. They would have a nice template and they would start to build this template out, which would put in place the rules that would govern this business. So, you know, what type of plan are we going to have in the business? Will it be directors? Will it be an independent board? Will it be a family board, an advisory board? They'll determine that. They'll talk about, well, who's then going to be the shareholders? How are we going to transfer that equity? And how are we going to vote? So what's the voting rights and how do we make those decisions? Or how are we going to pay distribution? They're all good things, but it was very much a business approach to building a constitution. And the hope was that rule book would now solve all our problems. So what you're telling me is they were building middle link. What they were doing, they were taking entire system, putting it apart and just building one particular element of the system, not the entire system. That's right. Yes. It was a plaster. It was, yes. well, what works in the corporate world is, well, they've got very clear boundaries and rules and distinct roles. And so, you know what, we'll just pull that in and put that into a family business in the form of a constitution. And so we've done that and we've done that for years and we found that these failure reasons still occurred. So, you know, the thing was we weren't asking those questions which you were talking about earlier, which is what's the purpose of the source? In many ways, I work very retrospectively with families, so they're much further along the spectrum. But obviously, all of this is applicable to families who are building their business to be more prepared and start to do things early. So their first question is, well, why are we building this? What's the point? As you said, is it just to have a job or do I want to build something that's saleable? And what will my exit strategy be? To me, that what's the purpose of all of this? And, and when you start asking some of those important, bigger questions, and you start from that level, and then you start to focus on looking at, well, if that's my purpose, in fact, we, I might just change tack here. If you can imagine a pyramid, um, at the top of the pyramid, I would governance. But what sits below that is family communication and family relationships. But what sits below that is actually values, vision, and purpose. So ultimately, the foundation becomes, you know, what's important to us as a family? What do we really believe in? What do we hold dear? You know, is what are our values? And so what is our vision for the future? What is this all for? What's the point of all of this? Saleable business, supply funds for generations to come. You know, what's the point? What's this future vision? And I think once you've got that sort of who we are as a family, where are we heading with this whole family, family business thing in the future, you can then start to build your strategy. And it's those types of conversations and it's that area that you focus on. If you can imagine, if that's what families are spending most of the time doing, they're starting to build that second part of the pyramid, which is good family communication, good bonding relationships, open and honest communication. That's going to naturally come out of that first process of just engaging with each other. And we believe that once you've got that dynamic happening, that good family communication happening, and you understand your values, you understand your vision and purpose of this all, it's out of that that your constitution should be born. Most of it's already written once families have actually gone through those sort of foundational stages. Mm. And so then what we have is a document or a constitution or a rule book that is aligned with the heart of who this family is rather than a cut and paste document you know, of typically accepted rules in a constitution that's enforced in a family. And we believe that that's why those ones fail. It's not a legally binding document. It requires people to honor and respect the governance rules that are inherent in it. 
So if it's born out of family members, if they've shaped it, they own it, the chances of them honoring it are substantially higher. And as a result, that's where we can see that next generation is probably going to be better prepared and more likely to preserve the wealth into the third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth. Yeah, and that's a great, to me, there's a bit of a visualization there when you said, you know, look at the pyramid, and we're talking about building foundations upwards. That's right. Rather than, you know, if if you say that you're trying to build the governance first, you're trying to build the top of the pyramid first. And then build down from there, which just doesn't work. Well, so the problem with it, what are you governing? Yes. If you don't yeah. have the base, it's actually what's the meat of your governance. Yeah. And you are coming to the absolute core principles of building any good business as well. Any business should start with purpose. Exactly. Why are you doing exactly. it? Yes. The same with the family unit. It's no different. Yes. Is why are you doing it? Yes. And right now, can you please take us through the most exciting case you have been consulted mm. and uh, consulting for and involved in? Mm. I want to know real case scenario, how to reach people, what they're struggling yeah, with, sure, sure. What, when you were brought in, why you were brought in, and what lessons our listeners effectively Maya, can learn from it. Mm, sure. And just to echo what you said, Nadia, you know, ultimately... Simon Sinek, I think many people would have heard of him. He, he runs a lot of sort of yes. uh, videos on YouTube and he does a lot of lectures. And he's looking at businesses primarily saying that you need to start with the why, you yes. know, and then you can sort of cast that vision forward and you'll know sort of the what that you do. And then the third bit is, and how are you going to do it? And that's ultimately what we were just saying. You know, you start with your values, you cast your vision forward. And then once you've got that, you build your strategy. And your strategy is building a family constitution. That's one of the pieces of it. Because there are many components that make up a family constitution that maybe we'll get to expand on later. But they are pieces of your strategy puzzle. So as I said, you know, we often do this or personally, I often do this with families very retrospectively. So they come to us mostly at the stage or the age of transition. Most are in their late 60s, 70s. Many founders are now wanting or driven by that idea of a legacy. That's often the real motivation here is I've built this thing. It's my legacy and I want to leave it. I want to shape it. And as a result, as I said, many might go down that path of trying to secure it through enforcing structures until their death. And then, of course, what happens is the family finds out about it in the will. They find out about the plans and intents and wishes of, say, the patriarch in this case, and they don't like it. And so they sue. And we see this every day. I mean, we're seeing it in the newspapers. We just now know the new legal term came, class of disappointed beneficiaries. Absolutely. It's just existing. And lawyers make a lot of money from disappointment of the family members. Exactly. So do accountants. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I cannot remember the name, unfortunately, of the family now in WA, but they are quite a well-known public family, I think worth about $1.2 He was a, a mining magnate. But he's been in the newspaper for the last three years since his death. He was on his second or third wife. I don't think he was married to his third wife. They were very sort of recent and new. But upon his death, he did this. There was no pre-conversations. There was no exposing of the will and showing exactly what his intents were and actually having the family engage with that, which is actually something I encourage. No surprise, it should be in the will. All family members need to know exactly what's in there well before. And as a result, it was all rolled out. Not only do we have the most recent wife in court, her son, so the stepson's in court trying to get his share. We've got the ex-wife in court trying to get her share. We've got the grandchildren in court trying to get their share. We've got cousins in court trying to get their share. So, you know, it is an absolute disaster. 
And I remember the Age article writer, he sort of ended it saying, if only there was some love in this family or something like that, you know. But he was really capturing the heart of this this particular family example that there was no committed relationships. There was no healthy bonds between his family members. So, yeah, so unfortunately that's the stage that I'm often getting involved, you know, is oh, po- post-death or slightly po- before created, death. Yeah. We created mess. Please clean it up yes, for us. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So uh, some w- of the examples... Would you not involve in yeah. of it? So I might give one sort of example of a family who I've been working with, a fairly well, well-off family where when the patriarch died, he left equal shares, two sons and a daughter, in later age now, they're in their sort of 60s around there. Two of the family members are still involved in the family enterprise. And I was asked to get involved because her daughter and her were quite estranged from each other. I have a good enough relationship in her terms. And uh, this mum was saying to me, I want to see my grandchildren. And unfortunately, if I don't give my daughter money, I don't get to see my grandchildren. And so, of course, if mum was upset, her tool, her method was to pull back some of the money or to threaten the money. And then, of course, the daughter would come with the grandkids to visit and then they would stop the clock again. This was the sort of type of dynamic. And so, yeah, I was asked to get involved to try and see if we can improve this relationship. And ultimately, our focus was to try and get control of the finances first, because in this case, this is a clear example of a family who haven't built relational bonds. They built bonds on how to relate through money. This is our relationship. It's always been you supply the funds and that's what looks after me, not that you're actually present in my life. So a clear example of the absent parent in a way. Now that mum's wanting to have this relationship, but she doesn't realize she doesn't have that bond with her daughter. She actually hasn't earned that bond with her daughter. And her daughter you know, doesn't see her mum that way. She sees her as the cash cow and, and she's controlling as well much, but mom in so. this equation very is not so. an innocent one it's too little too late well, mom has caused this and she recognizes this and she's actually quite open and honest but she's not capable to change herself and so you can see where the challenges lie mm. and so our process was ultimately to work through their family office setup so there's a family office set up to put in some rules and this might be the first part of the family constitution is to try and put in some rules around what is the agreement read amount of money here. Let's actually commit to that. And once we've committed to that as a family unit, we can then put in in things in place to prevent the bad behavior, the way of accessing funds, such as getting your hands of mum's sort of credit cards. And for us, we started with family meetings. We started at a round table where we try to talk quite openly about the issues. And unfortunately, in some cases, that's too soon with some families because they don't have enough structure in place to actually help them cope with a fallout of those types of conversations. So this is probably a good example where we had to maybe do a slightly different strategy, which is let's actually go and build some things, some structures in place to give them something to hold on to because they themselves emotionally don't have anything to hold on to. Traditionally, we wouldn't do this. We'd get families getting together regularly, learning how to talk, opening up about their issues, trying to find their common values building those connections and then start to problem solve and deal with the conflicts and build the solutions. Here we had to sort of try and get in and remove money as a weapon, as a tool. Tool of manipulation. We had had to get it out the way. And so we went in pretty hard and we got some boundaries. And uh, look, this is a case where where I think I've even alienated the daughter because obviously I'm doing something that she's not happy with. I'm stopping her money, her gravy train. But the surprising thing is, is that the mum and the daughter are actually talking and they're not talking money. 
And that was the ultimate goal of this first stage was I'm quite happened to be a bit of the enemy here mm-hmm. for the sake of pulling money, you putting some boundaries you? around it. In a way, yes, because it means that, you know, the commitment between the mother and daughter is the daughter knows I can't ask mum for money because it's now been pulled out of the mum's hands. We've written it in such a form that she doesn't control the distribution. Mm. So the daughter can't go to the mum. And so the mum now is not able to throw that back at the daughter either, you know, or say, oh, I'm going to just pay you now and I'll bribe you back into a relationship. Well, no, because this has been signed off by all of your family members and it's now been taken out of your hands and we've got separate accounts controlling things. So that's probably a good case example of where getting some good structures in early are are very helpful. How many times a mum has seen her grandkids since then? Once. That's not a big achievement. It's better than nothing, <laughs> which oh, it got, was in the past, yes. You know, my insight there, money is not a substitute mm. for life. No, money is not. not a substitute for love. Yes. It's not a substitute for a relationship. Exactly right. In fact, it's not really a substitute for anything. It is simply a commodity. Yeah. That's it. A tool for bartering. You know, and that's why I said earlier, you know, in the wrong hands is where it becomes a problem. It's our attitude, it's our psychology that we bring the money that causes it to be the root of all evil. Mm. It is not in and of itself a bad thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I'm kind of interested. So let's take someone like me, for example, or, you know, someone like Nadia. We're in the process of building mm. a, you know, what we hope to be a successful business mm-hmm. and our listener out there, you know, in the process of building a successful business and, you know, working hard every day and no doubt making some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. You know, they possibly prefer to be doing some things differently. Of course. And what advice can we give them, you know, some strategies maybe of how they can kind of think about this succession planning mm-hmm. or at least improve the chances of of even having, you know, better relationships. How can they make the, the wealth work for them instead of against them? Yeah, sure. Because in a wealthy family, it appears to be that it's tearing them apart. I don't want any business owner to go mm. through this because it's Absolutely. the most torturous experience, losing your loved ones, not to death, but to the alienation. Yes, yes, mm. for sure. Look, I think, you know, and it doesn't really matter where you are in the stage of the game, but, you know, prevention is better than cure, for sure. So I think that's a really good question is what can even small family businesses do that haven't quite built to maybe that huge valuable asset stage yet? Just be really aware of investing equally in your family as you are in your business. That is a challenge. We have to be realistic here. You can't build a successful family business and be in perfect balance with your family as well. You can't spend 50% of your time with your family and 50% in your business. I just don't think that's realistic. So it's just back to maybe two things. One is recognizing that You're only human, and so the stresses and the strains and the pressures of that family business day, this applies to anyone, even if you're simply employed, you know, going to work, to a job and back, that all of that that stuff you're dealing with at work, that you are going to bring that home. So the first thing is, is how can you put some boundaries in place and know which hat you're wearing? How can you transition between the business and the family home so you're not bringing the stresses and strains of the business into the family home? And I think, and that works in reverse. Whatever's happening in the family at that time, how can you contain that and not bring that into your workplace or your family business? And there are many things that you can do. I mean, that's certainly what a lot of life coaches do and psychologists in terms of stress management where they teach strategies of how you can transition between the two. I would simply say, you know, don't do work at home. And if you have to, you know, have a separate 
office, maybe even outside of your house where you can literally walk out, go and do some work and then come back into the home. You know, there are things you can structurally do to demarcate when I might work and when I'm at home. You can set this up with your partner as well, where you can actually have your wife, your husband hold you accountable for what do we talk about in the family home? Let's allocate every Wednesday night for one hour and we talk finances or we talk business. So we allocate time to fight over things like that for that matter. <laughs> but I think by, by trying to compartmentalize, you can actually very effectively build some good healthy boundaries and it actually helps the human brain transition here now, this is who I am, but now I'm, I'm the father or I'm the mother and I need to be that person. What do they say? Rob Paul to pay Peter? Or how what the saying goes? And that's how the merging between those compartments. When I'm doing work at home, what I do see yes. that I'm not with kids. Yes. Yes. Hundred exactly. percent. I'm just ten yeah. percent with them probably. Yeah. And I'm not hundred percent with work yes. as well, because I'm paying attention to what my kids are doing and I'm just Hush, hush, just let me finish yes. this phone call. What I should be doing is just giving mm. them very clear guidance. Give me 15 minutes and mm. I'm back on deck exactly. and I'm just going yeah. to be managing it. Uh, yeah, and I think other things you can do are to, to maybe start having family meetings early. You know, we've got many families who are starting with their young kids in a very informal sense. They have once a week family meetings where they're five and six-year-olds. You know, they might mm. be getting together with to talk about What's our next holiday or what are we doing on the weekend? You know, and what you're doing is you're socializing your children into that. We get together regularly as a family and we talk about family stuff, mm. not business stuff, family mm. stuff. And of course, as you mature in your business and as your children grow and mature, you can start to bring not the business itself. This The point of family meetings is not to talk about business strategy, but it is about saying this is how the business is going and I'm stressed at work because of this reason, and that's why I'm behaving this way at home. And it just gives an opportunity for the family to talk about those family issues, mm. maybe in the context of the business and the wealth that's been developed and grown. And of course, again, at every stage of as the children are ready and they might be later adolescents, you might start to bring the financials into those family meetings and start to share with them how well or how poor the business is doing and get them educated up on, you know, how hard it's been. Hmm. And, you know, money doesn't grow on trees and just start to get them to see the inherent value of it. And this comes back um, to their preparation. Absolutely. Like this preparing. is all the stuff so that you can do to just prepare me, the family as you go along. Yeah. You're telling me uh, that it's actually healthy to expose children to stresses of Adult experience? Very much so. I encourage... Because a lot of people do opposite. Exactly right. They shelter yes. them. They think yes. they deserve to have this type yes. of childhood. Exactly. And they don't need to know yeah. this stuff. Mom and dad will fix it. Yeah. It's mom's and dad's problems. Yeah. This is that failing to prepare and adequately train your heirs. You know, the example that I've, I've always sort of resonated with me was, you know, you wouldn't walk out the door and give your 18-year-old child the keys to a Ferrari when he's, he doesn't have his license, I mean, you wouldn't do that. You would not go and say, hey, son or daughter, he has the keys to million-dollar car, an extremely powerful car. We know how dangerous this car is. I know you've had no lessons in driving a car. You don't have your license, but here it is. You know, you just simply wouldn't do that. And that's actually what we're ultimately doing with this family business, this family wealth, is we're not preparing the kids. We're just waiting when they're a little bit older to say, here we go, now deal with it. So 
a lot of parents say to me, yeah, but I don't want to talk about wealth. I don't want them focused on it. I don't because this is going to backfire somehow or it's going to make them greedy. And it's the complete opposite. It's not actually openly talking about money, about where it comes from, about the burden of paying debts and bills. I even encourage family members uh, with their adolescents to sit down and go through their credit card statement together so their kids can actually see where all the money's going and how many expenses there are because this is what's preparing them for the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping the, that away from them is not – the human brain doesn't just acquire this information out of nowhere. You know, yeah. it has to be taught. It has to be imparted. And I'll say to these parents, wouldn't you rather shape and know that you're in control of what they know and how much they know and how accurate the information is than them acquiring through other sources? Mm-hmm. And I probably will zoom right onto it because it is a big deal. Sorry if I repeat myself. There are a lot of my clients shelter their kids yes, of course. and their wives yes. from the stresses of the business, from the stresses of the finance, yes. which effectively they are exposing them later on to disaster. Yes. Yeah. And of course, you know, sensibility should govern here. So it's not, you know, exposing your six-year-old or your 10-year-old to the fact that the business is failing and we're all going to starve. I think there are certain things you can, you know, reasonably protect your children from. It's about age-appropriate revelation. And it's more with an angle what dad is working on at that point of time. It's all about what efforts are made in order to overcome certain problems, but problems are there, they're real. And this is what mommy or daddy are doing. Therefore, children can see what the sacrifice is and why dad is not always there. So we have many families where their adolescent boys are actually sitting around the table. And this is where I see it being done really well, where the father will actually be talking openly about the purchasing and selling of assets and what they could mean for the family. It means that they might not be able to go on the next overseas trip for that matter. And and he wants to get the input from, he say, two teenage boys in this case. And you'd sit there going, are you crazy? They're teenage boys. Why the hell would they even have a right to say? But what he's doing is he's teaching them problem solving. I had Lisa Stevenson. She's a speaker. She was uh, speaking and I'm just forever grateful to her that she'd done a wonderful episode for us. She actually came with three of her kids to tax consulting session to show kids before they went to Italy, to Mm. show kids what it looks like on finances and why they can afford doing these things because of your careful planning. Now I see another, my really respected client, he's approaching me, he's asking me to involve his children Mm. in a discussion session. So there is a bit of this happening at the moment, but they are very enlightened people. They are. They, they actually kind of people who is thinking about yes, their they children. recognize the importance of preparing uh, 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 their children. Exactly. Mm. And there is a saying in, mm. in Russia, we have a saying, the good parent is not the one who does everything for exactly their children. Right. The good yes. parent is yes. the one who making sure when they're gone, yes. the child can do the same things as a parent could have yes. done for, for yeah. him. And that's the other side of the coin. That's where wealth, you know, can disable a child, where everything's done from them. So, you know, I recently presented at a a workshop where I shared on some of the things we've seen that lead to the raising of, you know, spoiled children in a way. And they they can be simple things such as in many of these wealthy families, they will have a driver drive their child to school. They'll have a gardener. They'll have a house cleaner. They'll have a, a chef, someone cooking the meals, you know, and that gardener might even be washing the cars outside for the family. So if you just look at everything that's been done, you know, what does that child learn to do for themselves? They actually come out of that age of being reared with a mentality of other people do things for you. That's the conclusion. That's the only conclusion that that young human brain 
can learn. But that's actually disabling that child from actually learning what their own capabilities are. They've never got to test what they're actually able to do. But what they've come out is the solution lies in other people. So you can see there's no resilience that's been developed and they're used to simply just paying others to do things for them. And so, of course, at the first sign of them having to get a job or do anything, perform, they don't cope very well at all. So there's that dependency that gets fostered and developed on that wealth. You pull that away and their whole world falls apart. No surprises that we see, you know, um, people of, of wealth generally have almost twice the rates of depression than when compared to the clinical population. Here we are dreaming about money will make them yes, happy, yes, holidays and yes. everything, and we have clinical yes. depression twice as... So the key, you know, we often say is how can you use this asset to empower your children or how can you use it to disempower your children, you know, and make them dependent? And that first example I gave of that mum and her daughter, in this case, both of them have been disempowered. She was made dependent. She was dad's little princess, you know, and he just spoiled her rotten and she's never worked a day in her life. Mm-hmm. So she's dependent on it and her daughter's now just the next generation consequence of that. And that's the thing, unless you stop this and break it, it'll just keep going for generations to come. So yeah, getting in early and being able to actually expose your children to exactly how this has been earned, what's going on, the costs of this, even getting them to actually make decisions and contribute to those decisions If you're doing all of that in these early phases, you know, if you get to that point where you now do have a fairly large business or a lot of wealth that's sort of at stake, you've already got your family governance in place. You know, in America, they call them family council meetings. You know, this is where you've now got a group of family members who all have a, an invested interest in the success of this business or the preservation of the wealth. They might not all be shareholders. They might not all have voting rights, but they get together on a regular basis to talk about how it's all going, but mostly to also just talk about family issues. And by doing that, you now suddenly isolate family stuff within a family context, and then the business will be governed by the business board. And so they will only discuss business board matters. They will not discuss family matters. But what you'll have is maybe a representative of the family board who will come to your family council meeting and share what's happened there and vice versa. The broad decisions that the family meeting or the family council have made will be taken by that representative back to the board to say, let me represent the wishes of the family. So you've got a great connection between the two, but ultimately you've taken what is a you know, family and a business circles or two circles and you've separated them out. There's still always going to be overlap and there should be, but they're not one of the same. We're not confusing them. We've now built some good boundaries in place. Yeah. Well, it's all very interesting things, even though a lot of these common sense things, but common sense is not that common no. anymore. It just goes out of the door. The moment the large sums of money in front of you, the basic instinct kicks in and we just no longer act like humans mm. towards each other. And what I do see you have given us, you draw our attention to this important aspect of businesses, which we don't look at. We building middle uh, link. We are not building entire system. System can, the elements can support each other with the elements on its own. There is no symbiotic relationship which just gives this synergy. We just isolated and that's why the struggle comes. So we setting ourselves for failure mm. by dealing just with one element at the time. We need to look at overall system, put infrastructure in place and put the rules of the game in place very early on. Doesn't matter how big or small you are, it's all the same principle applies because mm. there is a merging of the roles which you play. With small business owners, the same. 
I actually teach them to recognize their heads. Mm. We effectively identify 10 mm. heads and mm. one business owner wears yes. in, within a business. <laughs> I didn't even take Talk the heads about identity out. confusion. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even take heads outside of the business, what they wear as a family union. Yes. Therefore, what we do have is this ability to juggle those heads and outsource the heads mm. to right people by enabling them to perform these roles under these heads. And what else I hear from you is you do have to expose your children, maybe in a guided way, Hmm. to stresses. You do need to expose children to the knowledge early on and make it as a normal everyday occurrence of open communication with what you're going through. Build their awareness. That's correct. And quality of time doesn't mean the quality and quantity the risk can be in reverse. You are sacrificing as a business owner a lot to build this business. Mm. Therefore, you have to now it's a responsibility on making this scarce time with your children, make it as valuable as possible and invest in activities which will make your children grow as a human beings as a functional Mm. members of any unit they are uh, wishes to enter. So prepare your children. Don't give them the fish, give them the road. Mm. It's an old saying happening. And I loved you. Sleeves to sleeves. Yes. Uh, it is happening. So we have to somehow teach business mm. owners to overcome this issue mm. early on. Mm. Well, we're in our biggest wealth transition period ever in our history here in Australia. Um, and I think even internationally, the estimate, I think it's about $3.5 trillion are going to be transferred to the next generation over the next sort of, you know, 10 years. So there's this substantial wealth transferring. But for us in Australia, this is one of our first biggest periods of where we're seeing first to second generation wealth being transferred. Mm. So I think it's going to become a a more and more important issue. But as you've said, this doesn't just apply to that end of the spectrum. These are things that I think even just family members without businesses could probably employ, you know, having family meetings and doing financial literacy training. I love the family meeting thing. I think I'm going to implement those. Yeah, they're (laughs) extremely effective. They're extremely effective. And really just build on the awareness because it's not – we don't have to go and have these direct conversations about money and no. and make it. It's not about making it their problem. It's no. about building it into their awareness. So that's they've it. got ways to deal with it, that's it when it comes time. Exactly. That's where we're really kind of yes. trying to go with it. Yes. That's been really great. I think I need bigger board. All family unit will come to the uh, yeah. And that's sign exactly off. what you need. That's exactly how it looks for us. We can yes. have ten people in a room. Yeah. Ten family members in a room. All working yeah. on whiteboard is your action item discussing and I'm just looking at my cutlery cost, at my coffee cost. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you deal with that. So yeah, Ryan, thanks a lot for coming and sharing with us today. How can our listener connect with you? Look, I think through Nadia probably has my resources. We will put it all on your podcast, under podcast script. And yeah, yeah. basically, Ryan does have his yes, email and I do. So, yeah. <laughs> website so as well. Simply the- put, it's, it's ryan.morgan at familylegacybuilders.com.au. I, I love it, Family Legacy Builders. More than happy for listeners to, to pop me an email and we can get in touch that way and, and have a chat. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. All right. Huge thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.